झम त तोम त धीम तिट्ट Welcome to an off-the-beat dance podcast with Amaya and Kiran. I'm Amaya King. I'm a Kuchpudi dancer, dance educator, and writer based in Richmond, Virginia. I'm Kiran Najigal Palin, and I'm a New Jersey-based dancer, choreographer, educator, and writer. Our plan for today's episode had been to discuss dance as it relates to sacredness and secular spaces, but. As we looked back on what we've done so far this season, we thought about how we had already talked about how dance becomes embodied through the Yatoha Sasatodrishti Shloka, as well as dance as it is experienced by the audience through the discussion on Rasa over the course of two episodes. But what we kept coming back to, and what we wanted to do a deep dive on, was how. is dance felt by us dancers so this is the biggest elephant in the room what about the dancers themselves what about the performers experience in this whole discussion about rasa and about intentionality and this is what we would like to do in today's episode is to center it on joy and what that means to us as dancers jam So the idea of centering joy is something that took me a long time to really embrace and to understand and analyze for myself. I'd like to share with everybody my deeply felt experiences as a dancer during pandemic. In February 2021, I was invited to participate in Ramapo College's Berry Center for the Performing Arts virtual season that was centered on artists in New Jersey called Made in New Jersey. I was invited to present an excerpt from my latest dance work called Vaishravana, The Untold Story of Kubera. For those of you who are not familiar with Kubera, he is a pan-Asian deity who represents wealth in the form of material resources such as gold, gems, land and all that and i was supposed to frame him as a villain and so this was a very interesting production for me because it was the first time in my life that i decided to do something very political as a dancer but i had premiered this work back in 2019 when prior to pandemic i had access to reliable dance space and i was in much better form to be quite frank i felt like I had lost my urge, my drive to be creative during pandemic because I was overwhelmed like many of us were. And I was feeling very very self-conscious going into a pre-recorded video because I had made the conscious decision not to do live stream performances because I didn't have access to a really nice space and it was not safe for me to do so at that time. So my practice wasn't great. My physique my weight my stamina was also in my opinion terrible and i was also making unhealthy comparisons to my dance practice when i was living in india when my life was fully devoted to being a dancer and a student i went into this recording with this emotional baggage that made me feel for the first time in my life extremely self-conscious i was wondering how people would think about 
what I had to say because this was a piece that starts off not at all rooted in Bharatanatyam. It was rooted in Kandyan dance, a style that I had been studying since 2019, but it was still very new to me. And it was also a piece that, as I had said, was extremely political. And many of my private thoughts about various topics, such as capitalism and even colorism, were things that I discussed privately but never had danced about overtly. So I was really nervous on that sense, too. And of course, I've always had a contentious issue with body image and my weight. But the one thing that I had to look forward to was that joy to be on stage once again is so strong in me that it helped push me through that. But I was still extremely nervous because I wasn't sure how people were going to take to the work. And so presented the work with live Candian percussion. And this was an incredible experience because even though I didn't have an audience, Sahrudaya, as we've talked about in episode one and two, I had basically the feel of a performance once again because I was energized by live percussion. And that got me through the recording part of it, but I had to wait a month and I stewed in my emotions until it was released. On the day of the live stream, I was really, really nervous for the first time in my life about dance, which had never happened to me before. The live stream happened, and then we had a live stream question and answer session, which I was joined with by my partner, Wesley Beeks, and he did the set design for the production. And it was something about having him there with me that also helped me through because Wesley gives me a lot of joy. And it was in the moments after the live stream when I started getting the emails, the Facebook responses, the WhatsApp messages that were talking about the impact of the work. And it was a validation in many ways. But it also taught me an extremely important lesson. The production of creating Kubera had given me a lot of joy. Performance itself gives me a lot of joy. And no matter what, joy is what pushes me through even when I feel like the dance world, the the external pressures of being a dancer can be overwhelming. Somehow, joy has this amazing capacity to dispel darkness. And I think it's something that needs to be talked about more, about what that means. And it's something that's deeply personal. It's deeply self-involved. But ultimately, it is what allows us to have, you know, the light that comes from our dance be able to impact the people that we want to impact with dance. For us to move others through our dance, we first have to be moved by our dance. Excellent. The way that you had just crystallized that, it reminds me a lot about what we've talked about personally when it comes to the relationship between the dancer in practice and the dancer in performance. Absolutely. A struggle that I have had for many years as a student of dance, and I use that phrase intentionally, was as much joy as I got from dance, I could not find that joy on stage. The stage, for me, I think, in stark contrast with you, Kiran, was a scary place because the weight of the responsibility of a performer seemed too much. 
this idea that a good performance has to be validated by the production of rasa in the audience and that i had to carry all of that really made me anxious about being on stage and fear the stage but i love dance and i love dancing i just didn't know how to love dancing on stage and this became reinforced over the years because i would hear people say you dance so beautifully in class when you're teaching you dance so beautifully in rehearsal you dance so beautifully when you were demonstrating but your performance was not the same way and i took that to mean you know some people are meant to dance on stage as performers and other people are meant to teach and be on the sidelines and maybe i'm i'm not built to be a performer that wasn't something that i had peacefully that was a problem that was my burden to bear however last year right before the reality of the pandemic hit i had completed my masters in kuchipudi at the university of silicon andhra with the pandemic and with the protests that were uniting people on the streets against um police brutality and all of this i struggled with my joy for dance because what i was dancing to no longer made sense i was asked to dance um by one of my professors at my alma mater the college of william and mary from the theater department he was starting a series of performances specifically for the purpose of joy in dark times so on the anniversary of martin luther king jr's i have a dream speech on the heels of the passing of civil rights leader john lewis he wanted to do a show songs of freedom and he asked me to dance and i had to say yes because this was an opportunity for me to bring my personal life my personal fears of being the wife of an african american man being the mother of a biracial son being a woman bringing a new life into the world in these dark times of a pandemic of such racial animus it was an invitation to work through all of that through my dance and so i did and that performance was probably the first time that i found joy despite the fear i was still afraid of the stage but in this case the proverbial stage was my basement i danced my heart out around the same time um i was working on an article about my growth as a dancer over the course of the years and also working with one of my um university professors dr yashoda takwar on an article that she had written specific to parshadeva sangeeta samyasara and all of a sudden my experience became validated because here was a text with sanskrit terms and a taxonomy of the joy that a dancer experiences and all of the things that i felt off stage as i danced were listed here as valid outcomes of a dancer's work which meant i no longer had to worry about the responsibility of producing rasa in an audience that i was scared of all i could focus on was my joy tam tat tom ta dhin ta dikgin ta
It's time for an aside. There are three distinct stages of Sanskritic literature specific to Indian dance, which are beautifully delineated in Mandakranta Bose's book, Movement in Mimesis. The earliest stage, which spans from the Shastra, which is believed to be from somewhere between the 2nd century BCE and 4th century CE, and it goes all the way to Abhinava Gupta's Abhinava Bharati, which was written either in the 10th or the 11th century CE. The second period of Sanskritic texts on dance, which spanned from 11th century to the 15th century CE, had several distinct features. Books in that time focused on dance and music as independent subjects. Books on dance typically had at least one chapter on music and vice versa. They also started paying attention to desi dance forms, but more to come on that. The last stage of Sanskritic dance texts, which spanned from the 16th to 19th century CE, is when we can start seeing descriptions of regional dance forms that are recognizable predecessors of the neoclassical dance forms of India today. Going back to the second period of Sanskritic literature, we tend to favor Nandikeshwara's Abhinay Darpana as a technical manual for dance, with its definitions of Nritta, Nritya, Natya having become pervasive. But there's now increasing focus in academic spheres on some of the other texts, like Jai Senapati's Nritta Ratnavali and Parshvadeva Sangeeta Samayasara. The Nritta Ratnavali elaborated on both Margi dances and Desi dances. Margi can roughly be taken to mean classical. To that end, Jai Senapati followed the Natyashastra's framework in his description of Margi dances. The Sangeeta Samayasara, which is a musical text but does have a chapter on dance, highlights Desi dances. However, I found a lot in common between what we see in dance as classical dancers today and what Parshvadeva has to say about the characteristics of Desi dance. But before we dive into that, let's talk about Parshvadeva. Ajaina Acharya, he lived between the 10th and 12th century CE and belonged to the Digambara sect. It is suggested that he was the protege of the 9th Jagadeka Malla of the Chalukyan dynasty. He was conferred titles like Srutignana Chakravarti and Sangeetakara for his knowledge of music. Both in music and dance, his focus was the Desi styles and he used not only Sanskrit terms but also Marathi terms. Parshvadeva's chapter on dance uses very different definitions for common dance terms. When talking about nritta, he discusses the importance of awareness of the context, the pulse of the audience, tala, bhava, and laya. In contrast, he talks about body movements set to tala and laya for nritya, but does not talk about abhinaya or emotion. Bhava is actually one of the 19 Deshyangas he defines 
and he says that it is the enthusiasm caused in the artist upon listening to the rhythm played by the instruments. These 19 deshyangas gave me a completely different perspective on the process of dance. He talks about characteristics such as mukharasa, which is the joy that a dancer feels as they ornament themselves. There's anumana, the yearning for being able to execute with technical perfection. There's lali, that is the enjoyment of music that turns into enthusiasm, as well as bhava, which is the enjoyment of the rhythm that's resulting in the joy of dance. And one of my favorites, dillayi, where the heart of the dancer melts as they dance. I'm not going to talk about all 19 characteristics one by one, but the takeaway here is that these characteristics are not describing different uh, possibilities of movements or prescribing rules of engagement. While commonly referred to texts like the Shastra, Abhinaya Darpana, and Bhoja Sringara Prakasha are looking at movement possibilities, naikas, naikas, and other characters. Parshadeva is firmly centering on the dancer and the dancer's emotional state and what brings the dancer joy. You know, Amea, I think I most resonate with the word anumana and this yearning to execute dance to your expectations in terms of your technical ability and what you think you're capable of. You know, I honestly think that I'm in this perpetual state of anumana, especially since I think back to my experiences of performing and learning in India and what I was once capable of doing in my early to mid-20s physically. But as I get older, I know that there are certain limitations of the body that I have to expect. In fact, I'm experiencing such limitations right now at 35. But if I fixate on technical perfection, then I lose a sense of joy in the very act of dance itself. Instead, I'm training myself to think more about artistic excellence versus technical excellence. And I think that is still inspiring joy in how to discover that as I continue to dance in my 30s and hopefully into my 40s, 50s and beyond. What I find interesting, though, is while it's documented, it's not one of the books that we talk about. We're not memorizing shlokas out of the Sangeeta Samyasara like we are for our standard list of texts. Probably because it's not talking about margi dance and its usage of common terms like bhava and uh, nritya don't align with the larger discourse. Given that there is a Sanskrit text that centers joy and centers the artist's experience of joy, in a weird sense, this text, the Sangita Samayasara, legitimizes it in its own way. But would you still say that joy is subversive like we did in the previous episode? You know, 
when I was bringing that up in the previous episode, I was actually thinking about a very specific podcast episode that I'd listened to um, by Brene Brown. Brene Brown is a, a researcher and a, and a New York Times bestselling author, and she has spent um, decades researching courage, vulnerability, shame, empathy, these sorts of hard, squishy topics that we like to put in a box and put aside. Um, and on her podcast, Unlocking Us, she was interviewing the queer Puerto Rican author, Gabby Rivera, and they got to talking about joy. And when I heard what they had to say, I kid you not, Kiran, I literally pulled out my notebook and started replaying that segment over and over again while I notated what they said. And in essence, Gabby Rivera was saying, at a time when she was in a very dark point in her life, she had this revelation that joy is what is not being talked about. Therefore, joy must be the most important thing. And what their conversation got me thinking about was how different would life look if we prioritized our joy, whether it is, whether it is our joy as individuals and especially what would happen to my dance if I prioritized my joy as a dancer. So what you just said about how different life would look if we start prioritizing joy, I have to sit with that for just a moment, Amea, because there's something extremely powerful that you just said, and it's in relationship to the way in which Indian dance is talked about. So oftentimes for young dancers, we're given this notion of the art being beyond the dancer, above the dancer. And what you just said about prioritizing joy seems antithetical to that because what I feel is that the art is only expansive and transcendent because of the artists that contribute to the art in their own unique and special ways. And that is driven by joy, the love for the art that we have and experience as individuals and how we translate that through our art is what makes art expansive because it's a collective of all these different voices coming together. And so to diminish the self is to make a false choice about some subings one's joy for the sake of a larger message. And you know, you're exactly right. That is exactly what I needed to stop doing to be able to enjoy dance on stage the same way I dance off stage. And that's probably why people are drawn to entertainment. And I don't mean entertainment is trivial because oftentimes there are things and elements in it which center joy and hope, right? And those are, those are sentiments that people really yearn for at the end of the day in a very instinctual way because what ends up happening is that as Gabby Rivera says so beautifully, since we don't talk about it, we might take it for granted, but because we don't have to talk about it, it's extremely important. As we were talking about centering the dancer's joy in terms of what we talk about as the purpose of art, I kept thinking about what does Thummer tradition have to say about this 
very phenomenon. Because we talked about in episode two, the Tolkapiam centering joy as a meparte, which is the analogous construct of rasa, but in the Tamar tradition. I was immediately reminded of another text, which is rather esoteric and rather rare in conversation, which is called the Kutanul. And so Kutu in Tamar means dance, and Nul has many meanings, but in this context, it means a treatise or a book. And what's special about this particular text is that it also centers, in very similar ways, Pashvadeva's notions of the joy of a dancer. So I'm going to read a quote that is from Kutanul, and it goes like this. Aham uyaraha, suvai ulamaha, ire udalaha, ilvadu kutu. So this is very old Tamar, so I'm going to roughly translate it based upon what I feel is the implied meaning versus its literal meaning. So feeling is the soul, taste is the mind, and expression is the body, all of which is embodied in dance. So everything that we experience in terms of an aesthetic response, a visceral response, an intellectual response, and an emotional response has its source from the dancer itself, is what I read this quote as. What do you think, Amea? You know what's fascinating about this quote? Um, first of all, just how I want to take in how beautiful it is. And it's, of course, bringing in the whole mind, body, soul you know, trifecta, that is something that keeps coming up um, in various schools of Hindu philosophy. But specific to dance, what I find so intriguing about this is with the Nati Shastra, we sort of have the focus on the character and then we have the focus on the audience. And the actor, the performer, is almost treated like a transparent vessel. The mechanics of the body are discussed. The outcomes and the outputs of the mechanics of the body are discussed. But it's the angas. It's not the person, the dancer. It's not the psyche or the psychological state of the performer that's taken into consideration, which is what I find interesting about the Thummer tradition at large. There is a lot of emphasis on psychology that runs through the grammatical and the um, epic texts that talk about dance in the Thummer tradition. And so they discuss ways in which the internal life of the dancer is reflected in the external world of what they present. And the Kutanul does this. And Pashvadeva also does this. Centuries later. Exactly. So it's interesting that both of these um, thinkers are also linked with one another because they talk about the local traditions of dance. The Desi traditions? The Desi traditions, exactly. Um, I'm not sure if that word existed as Deshi in the Tamar system, in the era that the Kutanul was written in, which is the Sangam period, they both talk about the local traditions of dance and how they relate to practices that are 
somewhat linked to what other texts have said before them. It's time for an aside. Kutanul is an ancient Tamar text from the Sangam period and the earliest known work in Tamar explicitly on dance. The term Kutu in Tamar means dance, and Nul refers to a book or a treatise. The date of this work is uncertain, but the figurative use of language, meter, and sound all reveal that this is an ancient text. Satanar, who is the author of Kutanul, is believed to be at the same time period as Tolkapiyar, who is the author of the earliest known surviving Tamar text called the Tolkapium, and that text has been dated between the 5th century BCE and the 1st century CE. Kutanul is a very interesting grammar text on dance because its stated intention by Satanar is to document and expand on the regional styles of dance that were in vogue in Tamaragam, which is the ancient name for Tamar Nadu. And at that time, it was a vast region which stretched as far north as Tirumala in Andhra Pradesh, all the way down south to Tengkumari, which is the ancient name for Kanyakumari, located at the southern tip of Tamar Nadu. What is also interesting about Kutanul is that it is part of the Tamar tradition in which dance is treated as a separate discipline. And this is in contrast to the Sanskritic tradition of that time, where dance was an integral part of theater and discussed in the context of drama. Works that focus exclusively on dance in the Sanskritic tradition came about much later during the medieval period, which was approximately from the 10th century CE onwards. The Kutanul was originally a work of nine parts, but only two have survived to this day, and both of those sections are on dance. It is one of the earliest, if not the earliest text, which mentions nine emotional states, a concept that's analogous to the Navarasa that we know of today. But in the Kutanul, these are called Suve, which is the analogous concept of Rasa in the Tamar tradition. But unlike Rasa, which is focused on the audience's emotional response to a work, this centers the experience and intentions of the performer. And this is divided into two aspects. The intention within, which is nalati, and the outward expression of said intention, or alati, through dance. What is also fascinating to me about Kutanul are the divisions of the different types of dance that are in the context of that which brings joy or a relished experience to both the dancer and the spectator. There are two types of dances. The first is called Poduviel, which are dances that are reflective of daily life. Then you have Vettil, which are aestheticized or stylized dances which can incorporate fantastical elements. And both types of dances are centered on bringing joy to the audiences that witness it and to reflect the joy within of the performer. What is also remarkable in the Tamar tradition is the discussion of dance that occurs through various types of literature. And this is through early grammar texts such as the Tolkapiyam, which we had talked about in episode 2, the Kutanul, and then we have some other texts such as the Pancha Marabu and Bharata Senapatiyam, which also talk about dance in great detail. 
In addition to the Tamar grammar texts, which talk about dance, we also have extensive mention and descriptions of dance practices in the great Tamar epics, which include Silapatikaram and its commentaries, Mani Mekale, and Jivika Chintamani. Unfortunately, just like in the Sanskritic tradition, there are gaps in the narrative about the development of dance in the Tamar tradition. And this is largely due to the fact that there's so many texts on dance that have been lost to time. And hopefully, with further research and investigation, just like the Kutanul was recovered during the 1970s, perhaps we'll be able to recover some of these lost texts, which will help us to paint a more comprehensive and rich picture of dance in the tamar tradition you know i think this kind of goes back to some of the things that we were touching on in the last episode where we've got the formal discourse of what is expected and what is right and 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 this is what we learn and then there's the the documented um text that we learn the narrative about and then there's the practice that we do, and somehow they're supposed to connect. But the connection isn't necessarily always clear. I feel like these texts that we don't necessarily center our dance education on are really bridging that gap between what is documented and what we're experiencing. Because both of those texts don't provide a strict methodology at the end of the day, right? There isn't anything prescriptive about the quote that I mentioned from Kutanur. And likewise, it doesn't talk about this has to be done in this way. These are the things that he observes in the traditions that are going on at that time that were in vogue. And, you know, the Natyashastra in contrast will say, you need to do this to create Karana. You need to do this to create Rasa. This is more abstract because this is more about internal versus external intentionality and it's it's focused on the process not the inputs or the outcomes so it's like when you see somebody on stage who is trying to depict sadness we process it as sadness as an audience but the thing that i feel like most people secretly respond to is that idea of the dancer's joy in coming into that emotional state, allowing themselves to feel vulnerable enough to be able to present that on stage for an audience and to just give in to the role and to give in to that joy of being able to do something like that, that's infectious because then I see that as an audience. I'm like, this person is so beautifully committed to the role. I feel for them. There's that investment in that performer because you can feel you can feel the joy coming from them that they enjoy what they do and they are in it. That to me is what Rasanu Bhava is. It's not necessarily that prescribed, expected outcome of seeing something sad leads to Karuna. It's all incidental, but at the end of the day, we are drawn to committed performers because of their sincerity. And where does sincerity come from? Joy. Ameya, what did you learn today? This idea of the process of being a dancer. It's, you know, we've got the inputs, which are the 
naikas and the nayakas and the ways we can move our bodies and the whole setup of Angika Abhinaya and all of that and the music and the rhythm and all of that's great. And then obviously we've got the outcome, which is the performance and the rasa siddhi and all of that. But focusing on that part in the middle, which is how the magic is made, focusing and honing in on that process of how we as dancers find that joy. That's that if we trust that, we will know the outcome will be there. As long as we have that that feeling that we want, that hope, that joy, that relishing of the experience that dance gives us, we can trust that the audience will be with us for that ride. Expanding upon the idea of relishing joy, I think psychologically, all of us are instinctually drawn to it. But it feels like, especially for me, we have to fight our training in order to recenter joy because of the way in which we we're taught about the purpose of art and the purpose of our dance and the purpose of us as dancers is usually something that is um, above one's joy and one's individual journey and self-expression of that joy in dance. And I think that, you know, with everything that was discussed about the text that centered joy, the Kutanul and the Sangita uh, Samayasara, it really tells us that the moment that we start to really focus on that joy is when you'll start to really relish the experience as both dancer. And that experience of relishing as a dancer is somehow transmitted to the audience to also follow along in that journey, as you had just said. So it, rem it, it feels like that rasa, suvei, or whatever um, analogous terms are in other languages that talk about aesthetic experience. For me, it's not a one-sided thing. As you said, it's not just a simple formula, input, output. For me, it's a two-way street. And so we talk about this idea of rasanubhava, especially in the Natya Shastra, where the person who is experiencing a performance and the person who's performing are in line. And I think that in line is not necessarily of the context of just the characters that are being portrayed on stage or the intended emotional content of what is being presented. It's that link through joy because it's so primordial. It's so visceral. And that's what draws a person to come into the world of the dancer. And that's what draws out the inner world of the dancer to the audience. Our call to action this week, think about what gives you joy and how to infuse that joy into your dance. Join our conversation. We want to hear from you. Today's episode would not have been possible without the incredible support and encouragement of our amazing listeners and the following people. We edit podcasts for audio engineering. Sangeeta Kaushik for graphic design of our logo. Sharada Jammi for Amiya Studio Space. Catwalk Institute for Kiran's Studio Space. 
Dr. Yashoda Thakur for sharing her work on the Sangeeta Samayasara, Dr. Lakshmi Ramaswamy for her insight on Kutanul, and finally, a very, very special thanks to Wesley Beeks and Bertel King Jr. Like what you heard? Remember to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. You can also support our work through Patreon to help us continue bringing you new episodes of Off the Beat. We'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell all your friends about us. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Off the Beat Dance or visit our website, offthebeat.dance.